You know how on TV shows, uh, if there's been a cliffhanger, uh, you know, sometimes the next episode will start and it'll say previously on, and they'll kind of like show you these clips to try to get you caught up. Well, if, if we were to do that this morning, it would be something like this. You know, previously on the Bible, God created a good world and people in His image, but they rebelled against God and brought sin and death into His good world. So God calls a man named Abraham and promises through him and his people he's going to make all things right. So these people end up in Egypt in a mighty nation. God delivers them from Egypt, brings them out to Mount Sinai where he gives them laws and he gives them a sacrificial system and he gives them a tabernacle so that he might live a holy God in the midst of an unholy people. And then he gets these people ready to go over into this land that he promised Abraham. And they're on the verge of this land, and they decide they don't want to go in. So he has to make them wander around in the wilderness till that rebellious, distrustful generation dies, and then Israel, the next generation, is ready to move in and take the land. And then that brings us to this past week's reading, as we read through the Bible together, where Joshua leads the people into this land God promised, and God does indeed give the land into their hands as their possession. They settle in. That was last week's reading. And this morning, and I hope that you are reading along with us. If not, Judges, we're just a few chapters into Judges. You could jump right in. I just gave you the previously, right? So you know the story so far, right? So now, jump in with us today, if you haven't already, reading the book of Judges. Now, the book of Judges, you know, it's like a tragic roller coaster of a story. I mean, the people are faithful to God and things go great and then they start worshiping idols and committing all this wickedness and really no different than the Canaanites they've replaced. And so God sends in an invading force to kind of take them over as judgment and people, they start to cry out to God, we're sorry we've messed up and He raises up a judge to deliver them and then the people are great for a while and then the next generation goes right back to their sinful ways. And it just repeats and repeats and repeats. Israel's unfaithfulness but God's continued faithfulness and grace and mercy to them. And then the next major movement in the story comes when we meet the last judge, a prophet by the name of Samuel. And as I'm sure you've already picked up in your readings, Israel's judges, like the nation itself, just seem to go from good to bad to worse. But in Samuel, they finally found a leader who could faithfully deliver God's word to the people. But they weren't satisfied. They wanted a king. Most of the Old Testament story from then on revolves around Israel's kings and the prophets that God sends to hold them accountable. But when Israel becomes a monarchy, a dramatic shift occurred. And to understand that, we once again need to go back to the beginning, as we've often done. We've got to go back to the Garden of Eden, to Genesis 1 and 2. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, God is presented as the king of creation. His power and authority are so absolute, he only has to say the word and an entire universe is born. Stars pop into existence. God creates this entire reality over which he is the sovereign king. And everything in the Garden of Eden worked in perfect harmony together. The whole creation in perfect submission to its king. And Eden really is a beautiful picture of what it looks like when everyone and everything lives in joyful trust and obedience to the king of creation. And when God created human beings, it says that he made them in his image to rule 
over all creation, over every creature on earth. And these image bearers were commanded to be fruitful and multiply, filling God's world with more of their kind so they could manage creation, they could be stewards over the earth, so they could make it useful and help it to flourish. Basically, people were put on earth to function like governors or or ambassadors, exerting the Creator King's authority into every corner of the world. We were made to mediate God's gracious rule on earth, working and creating and subduing the earth under His kingship. And when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, they abused their freedom. They rejected God's authority as king. And with that one simple act, humanity really attempted the the greatest coup in all of history. They tried to dethrone God and take the power for themselves. And they turned from listening to the king of creation, and they turned to listen to another king, the serpent, Satan himself. In fact, that's why Jesus in John 12, 31 refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. And now we live in a world that constantly disputes the authority and power of the God who created it. Rejecting Him, rejecting His reign, and living in perpetual defiance against Him. That's, that's the world that we have today. Now, when God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, remember they were slaves in Egypt, God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham through whom God said He would bless all the earth. They're slaves in Egypt. And so God comes in through His servant Moses and He declares that Pharaoh set them free. And of course Pharaoh refuses, so God uses these ten plagues, these ten horrible natural calamities to demonstrate that He was still the sovereign King of all creation. Really, God in these plagues invaded Pharaoh's dominion. He he had asserted His absolute reign over the people of Egypt and over their so-called gods. God showed Himself not only to be Israel's true king, but to be the true king of all creation. And so God brings Israel to Mount Sinai and He makes a covenant with them. And this was another expression of God's kingship. In Exodus 19, 5-6, we've read this several times, it's such a key verse. God says, Out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, God was the king. Israel was His kingdom. The tabernacle and later the temple were His palace. And the Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat was His throne. These things represented the kingship of God and His presence among His people. This was not some distant king on the other side of the ocean. He dwelled in the very midst of His people. And once the people of Israel were finally settled in the land, as we're reading now in Judges, they tragically, but sadly to say, not very unexpectedly, moved away from God's rule and reign. Like Adam and Eve before them, the people of Israel chose to do what was right in their own eyes. And in fact, the last section of the book of Judges contains this refrain that's repeated about four times. And it ends up being the very last sentence of the book. It says, In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did 
as they saw fit. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's how the book of of Judges ends. That's pretty tragic, isn't it? I mean, you want to talk about a cliffhanger, right? I mean, you've, you've got this amazing story. This, we've been with Israel on this fantastic journey from slaves in Egypt through the wilderness, Mount Sinai, the miracles, partings of the Red Sea. God provides food for them. They finally come into the promised land. God brings down the walls of Jericho. He gives the whole land into their hands. I mean, it's just an amazing journey. And this is how it ends. Israel had no king. And everyone did what was right in their eyes. It's kind of a downer, isn't it? The end of the book of Judges, it looks like God's kingdom would never be established in Israel. But these verses, this verse, this this last sentence, it doesn't just reveal a problem with Israel, it also reveals a solution. Israel needed a king. Now see, they had a king. God was their king. But they no longer acknowledged him as such. They needed a flesh and blood king. And when you consider how chaotic things in the book of Judges were, it might not be a bad idea to have a human king. Plus, all the nations around Israel were ruled by kings. Wouldn't a flesh and blood king in a physical palace on a literal throne, wouldn't that be a good thing for Israel? Well, that's exactly the line of reasoning that the people presented to the prophet and judge Samuel. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 8. And we're going to read this chapter. It's a short chapter. I know that we're all operating on an hour less of sleep. So if I hear any snoring, I'll just come down there and stand next to you. How's that? I can go anywhere with this thing. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. And the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old. Well, that's nice, isn't it? They just walk up to him, You're old, right? Not off to a great start there. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us as such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And he said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. And they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest. Still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your manservants and maidservants, and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. 
Then we'll be like all the other nations with the king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered him, Listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, Everyone go back to his town. So the problem is immediately apparent. Israel wanted a king because, well, that's what everybody else is doing. Right? Just like a bunch of teenagers. They wanted to be like every other nation. But wasn't the point of Israel's existence is that they were to be a peculiar people, a holy nation? Their very purpose was to be different from all the other nations. No other people had a covenant relationship with the Creator of the universe. No other nation could claim that God dwelled in their midst. And by becoming like every other nation, Israel really took a huge step backward. They were rejecting God as their true king. It was Eden all over again. So God appointed Saul to be the king of Israel. And we're going to look at Saul specifically next week. But suffice to say, Saul was a horrible representative of God's rule and reign. He, in a way, he kind of became God's I told you so about wanting a king. He fulfilled every warning that God just gave through Samuel. But all was not lost. God still had a plan for Israel. And when God rejected Saul, he called Samuel to go out and to find this young shepherd boy and anoint him as the next king. Now this term anoint is very important. It's a significant act whereby oil was poured on somebody's head as a symbol of God's spirit, God's presence coming on this person. To be anointed was to be set aside as God's chosen one for a specific purpose. And that's what happened to David. And David would grow up and he would eventually become the earthly king through whom God would rule as Israel's heavenly king. And we know that David was far from perfect, but the Bible tells us that he was a man after God's own heart. And David's reign was the golden age of Israel. And he became this ideal example of what Israel's king should be like. And because of David's great love for God, he, he couldn't stand the fact that he lived in this ornate palace, but God resided in this tent out there in a field made of animal skins. And so David said, that's just not right. We need to make a house for God. We need to make, if God is the king, and I mean, if I'm the human king and I live in this palace, God is the real king, the eternal king, certainly he needs a palace even greater than mine. So he wanted to build God a temple. But God sent the prophet Nathan to tell David that he would not build God's house, but his son Solomon would. But at that moment, God made a covenant with David, and he reaffirmed his purpose for David. In 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 8, listen, it says, Now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from following the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house 
for you. I mean, here's David wanting to establish a house for God. God says, I will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now this covenant God makes with David is an expansion of his covenants with Abraham and with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. He, re- he, he fulfills some promises, but he reveals other promises yet to be fulfilled that would someday be fulfilled ultimately, we know, through David's descendant Jesus. Did you see some of the echoes of God's covenant to Abraham in these words? Maybe some of them jumped out at you. Just look here at the screen at this. God told both David and Abraham, I will make your name great. God told David, I will provide a place for Israel. He told Abraham, to your offspring, I will give this land. To David, he said, your kingdom will endure forever. And to Abraham, he said, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The establishment of the throne of David and the coming Messiah who will come through David is how God is going to bless all peoples on earth through Abraham. So you see these different covenants that we've been seeing God makes with Abraham, God makes with Moses, God makes with David. It's really all the same thing. It is all pointing us toward the coming of Jesus Christ. God is still at work, even here, in keeping this covenant with Abraham. And despite Israel's constant unfaithfulness, God is constantly faithful to His promise and to work out His purpose through them despite themselves. You see, nothing ever takes God by surprise. He knew before Israel ever entered the promised land, He knew that they would reject Him as their king. And in His infinite wisdom and mercy, God made provision for them. Look at these words that God spoke through Moses in Deuteronomy 17. This is back before they ever cross over into the promised land. Listen to what God says. When you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. God called that one, didn't He? He knew them well. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And when, the, when he takes the throne of his kingdom... Listen to this. He is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him. And he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. In other words, the king of Israel was not above the law. He served under the true king, the Lord God himself. And he's not to consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left. 
then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. God intended for them to have kings who would know and follow his word, who would submit to his authority and be a true reflection of his kingly rule and reign. But God also knew that these kings would fail, some of them even worse than the people of Israel. And as we read through the rest of the Old Testament, you're going to meet some terrible kings and queens. Saul, Ahab, Jezebel, just to name a few. They were murderous, unjust, selfish, adulterous, practicing paganism and witchcraft, worshiping idols, leading God's people astray. That's, that's the kinds of kings that Israel and Judah end up with. And so God, knowing this was going to happen, sets up a system of checks and balances and how the kings would function. They were just one of three offices needed to maintain Israel's covenant relationship with God. We have kings, we have prophets, and we have priests. Now, the king was concerned with security. His job was to protect the land. The prophet was concerned with the salvation of the people. They were to proclaim the law, the Torah. And the priest was concerned with sacrifices to purify the people. They each had their separate office, their separate duty, anointed by God. Kings couldn't serve as priests. They couldn't make sacrifices. They could not enter the Holy of Holies. Rather, the king, like everyone else, would need a priest to mediate his relationship with God. And God gave prophets to remind the king that God is the true king and to ensure that the earthly king was ruling on his behalf, not by his own agenda. And so God used David's kingship to illustrate what he had been doing through his people since Abraham, but also pointing the people forward to what he will someday do through Jesus Christ. David wasn't the perfect king. He failed in many ways. We know the story of Bathsheba and Uriah where he had Uriah killed and he committed adultery with his wife. It's one of the worst things, but God forgave David. And he still held him up as the standard to which all future kings were to be judged. David's imperfect obedience, though, left God's people longing and waiting for another ruler. One who would be like David, yet better than David. And the prophets would revisit this idea over and over again. This ruler who would come from the line of David and who would put Israel and all kingdoms of the world back in order. This coming king would restore the world to the way God always intended it to be. Just look at a few of these prophecies in Isaiah 11, 1 through 3. Isaiah says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. Jeremiah said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. Ezekiel prophesied, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them, and he will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. And then in Amos, it says, In that day I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls, restore its ruins, and will rebuild it as it used to be. 
so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord who will do all these things. A future day when the kingdom and and the temple will be restored to a glory even greater than David could ever have dreamed. And then Hosea 3, 5 says, Afterward the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to His blessings in the last days. God's future plan for Israel was always for them to be His kingdom, living under the rule of His anointed one, the Messiah, who would be the ultimate mediator of God's rule on earth. That was God's purpose for Israel from the beginning. And the kings of Israel and Judah who served after David, they were mostly disappointments. First of all, they, the first kings after Solomon caused a civil war and the kingdom was split in two. And you have the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And under the leadership of these idolatrous, wicked kings, the people became so wicked that God expelled them from the land. The Assyrians came and wiped out Israel. The Babylonians came, took Judah to exile. And even after that exile, we read in Ezra and Nehemiah this record of a partial return of God's people from exile, but they had lost the land, they had lost the kingdom, they had lost the temple. Israel's very identity was in jeopardy, and they desperately wanted to regain what they had lost. And even with the the partial return, they still had no king and no kingdom. Daniel promised the kingdom would come in the future when the Son of Man would come to rule all nations. So once we reach the New Testament... The kingdom is still an issue for Israel. In fact, when Gabriel announces to Mary that she's going to give birth to Jesus, he uses language pulled right out of God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. Listen to what Gabriel says in Luke 1. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will never end. Jesus would be this prophesied son of David who would come to be the final king of Israel. And listen to what Jesus himself preached as he began his ministry. Mark 1 tells us that after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This was all good news to the Jewish people. The kingdom had finally come. Jesus was there to rule as God's anointed, the Messiah, the Christ. And unlike David's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom would never end. He will reign forever as king. But as Ben mentioned in the children's sermon, the kingdom of God that Jesus came preaching and preparing for wasn't exactly what the people expected. Jesus wasn't exactly the kind of Messiah king they were looking for. Which is why when Jesus asked his disciples this critical question, Who do you say that I am? Peter's confession is so important. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. That means you are the anointed one, the Son of the living God. Peter is saying that Jesus is the King who would come from the line of David, the one that all the prophets spoke about, the one who would come and finally usher in God's kingdom. This was a huge confession of faith. Jesus is the one who would descend from Abraham through whom all the nations would be blessed. Jesus is the one God promised Adam and Eve, the seed of the woman who would come and crush the serpent's head once and for all, 
providing the ultimate solution to the problem of sin. Jesus is the culmination of all human history. He is this long-awaited, prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament. He is prophet, He is priest, and He is king. All at the same time, Jesus would speak the very Word of God to the nations. Jesus would be the ultimate mediator between God and man. Jesus was the one promised to bring God's kingdom rule and reign to all the world. So when Jesus preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is near, it struck a deep chord. Jesus was claiming that the time for God to establish His kingdom is now, not just some future date. But like I said, the kingdom of God that Jesus was talking about wasn't exactly what the Jews had in mind. They wanted some king to come riding in on a white stallion and to chase the Romans right out of the kingdom and to restore the glory days of David. But Jesus' teachings and miracles, while they definitely demonstrated His authority as king, I mean, He had power and authority over, over nature. He could calm storms. He had power and authority over disease. He could heal people. He had power and authority over death. He could raise the dead. He had power and authority over demons. He could cast out demons. But I think just as important as that, these miracles in Jesus' teaching also showed that God's kingdom was present right there in Jesus. In fact, in Luke 17, Jesus says once, or says once on being asked by the Pharisee when the kingdom of God would come, look what Jesus said. The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. See, Jesus was more than just a moral teacher coming to bring inspiration. He came to reestablish the rule and reign of God in His creation. Jesus came to take back God's throne from those who had tried to dethrone Him. But there is this already not yet aspect to the kingdom of God because while God's kingdom was certainly present in Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus also pointed to a future, fuller expression of that kingdom. Jesus taught His followers to even pray for God's kingdom to come and His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what does all this mean for us as the instrumentalists come to take their places? As Christians, we are part of God's kingdom here and now. Where is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is here where God's rule and reign exists in the lives of His people. Yet we still struggle with sin and doubt, don't we? We still experience sickness and death. We still see suffering and evil all around us. The kingdom has come, but it's not yet come. It's here already, but not yet, all at the same time. Jesus said that He would come again to save His people. Not just from sin's punishment, not just from sin's power, which is what, when Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you receive Him as Lord and Savior, He saves you that moment from sin's punishment. And the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, the kingdom of God dwelling within us to save us daily from the power of sin. But Jesus said that there's coming a day where He will come and save us from the very presence of sin. And when He returns, He will bring judgment on those who reject Him and He will restore all things and make everything new. In the meantime, the gates to the kingdom are open. 
Anyone who wants to enter can come in. And Jesus sends us out as ambassadors of this kingdom to invite others to come and be reconciled to God. See, it's not just enough to know the story of Jesus. We're focusing on reading the Bible this year. It's not enough. We have to respond to it. The message of King Jesus who died for our sins and rose from death to defeat sin and hell and the grave and is returning to fully institute the kingdom of God, that's a message that demands something of us. Jesus calls us to turn from our sin and follow Him no matter the cost. So yes... The gates of the kingdom are open wide. You know, we hear a lot today about borders and immigration and who can come in and who can't come in. I'm here to tell you that the gates of the kingdom of heaven are open wide, but there is some extreme vetting. And it's simply this. Have you taken yourself off the throne and declared unyielding allegiance to King Jesus? That's it. Have you turned from your sin? Have you rejected the voice of Satan? Have you rejected yourself on your throne and said, Jesus, I want you on the throne of my heart. I'm all yours. And if you can say that, then you're in. Maybe this morning, that's what you need to do. Maybe you're sitting there today and you know that Jesus is not the king on the throne of your life. You know that you've been calling the shots and you've been living in sin. Today, you can enter the kingdom. Today, you can become a child of the king. Today, you can have Jesus rule and reign in your life if you would come and profess Him as Lord and Savior. For those of us who are Christians, who are members and citizens of the kingdom of God, guess what? We're not just citizens, we're ambassadors. And King Jesus is sending us out with the good news that all can come to Him and repent of their sins and be saved. And it's up to us to take that news. And we are trying to make that as easy for you at First Baptist as we can by offering training opportunities for you to learn how to share your faith, by providing cards like the ones up here and in the vestibule and all throughout the atrium that you can just take a card and put it in somebody's hand and say, would you worship with me Easter Sunday? How much easier can it get than that? But you know what? You've got to pick up these cards and you've got to take them to your friends because you know what I've noticed this week? These cards won't leave this building on their own. They just sit here. But you've got to take them with you. You've got to put them in people's hands. You've got to be ambassadors of the King. Maybe you're here today as a Christian, and you know that you belong to Jesus, but you struggle. You struggle with... You just keep finding yourself trying to ease back up on that throne. Maybe today you need to bow your head in prayer as we sing and just say, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me for my rebelliousness. Forgive me for my arrogance. Forgive me for the times that I do not submit to your authority. I truly want you to be king of my heart. Is Jesus the king of your life? Are you going out as ambassadors for his kingdom? Would God have you to unite with us at First Baptist Church as we try to represent the kingdom of God to McDuffie County?